This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. A new show is poking fun at, well, us. I'm Lauren Caspian, and this is In the Know. This is In the Know. You're a f***ing god. The first season of In the Know is out now on Peacock. It's set in a public radio station, maybe like the one you're listening to right now, complete with nervous producers on the mic for pledge drives. Hello. Welcome again. Ah! I'm sorry, that was my throat and body screaming. And NPR's third most popular host, Lauren Caspian, torturing guests and coworkers alike with a self-important grandstanding. And because I feel like we're in a flow where you're agreeing with me, would you mind if I rant about the violence of the male gaze? That public radio host is played by Zach Woods. Woods is best known for his roles in Silicon Valley and The Office. He's now directing In the Know. It's a stop-motion animation show that includes live-action, unscripted interviews with celebrities such as Roxanne Gay, Jonathan Van Ness, and Mike Tyson. After the break, writer, director, and star of In the Know, Zach Woods, joins us to tell us all about the show. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Zach Woods joins me now to talk about his new animated show, In the Know. Zach, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) There was a little hesitation. You're like, maybe, uh, I have to ask, what inspired the concept of the show? It sounds like you maybe have done a little public radio listening in your life. Yeah, I think some combination of affection for NPR and self-loathing was probably at the core of its inspiration. <laughs> I think the show is as much a, a satire of NPR listeners, of which I am one, as NPR as a world in and of itself. So Mike Judge, who was one of the co-creators of Brandon Gardner, and I, I, I think there's a lot of our own unfortunate personalities in the most loathsome moments. When did you first start listening to public radio? Probably in utero. 
But I would have anyway. You know, I didn't have a choice because I was floating in amniotic fluid. But even if I hadn't been, I would have tuned to the left side of the dial. My parents were listening to NPR all the time. So on car trips, when they were making dinner, all the time, it was the kind of background of of my life. Now you've said if you weren't an actor, you'd want to be Fresh Air host Terry Gross. How much input did you get from people working in public radio while you were creating the show? We got some. We talked to some people who worked at NPR. But the truth is, rather than trying to do a perfect kind of vivisection of the world of NPR, we sort of used NPR as a framing device for (laughs) um, a, a larger set of preoccupations. And to be clear, when I said I, you know, I would love to be Terry Gross in a different life, it was just because I want that level of raw power. It wasn't necessarily about her job as much as just the ability to quietly crush um, my enemies. <laughs> I've never heard Terry Gross described in in that way. How did you come to that conclusion about her her way. power? <laughs> to me, she is the, no. I mean, I, I I really love her show. She was one of those people who I was constantly listening to. It just seems like such an amazing job to be able to be professionally fascinated by things and then to get to talk to the people. Although I suppose sometimes it's probably uh, deflating in terms of your impression of people when you actually have to talk to them for an hour. Um, I will. I will keep my opinions to myself on that. Now, all this show is in stop-motion animation, except for the celebrities who appear in interviews with your character, Lauren Caspian. Those interviews are unscripted, but how much did your guest know about the way the conversation would play out? They didn't know too much about it. It was mostly, we, we would say, you know, you can treat this like a real public radio interview and you will be looking at a picture of a puppet and if something makes you laugh you can laugh if something angers you you can get angry you can answer honestly to questions um that are being asked i think you know they we made it really clear that we would try not to make the joke be at their expense Mm. because we really didn't want to make a show where we're just inviting people in in order to stick them with pins. Um, but other than that, it was, yeah, it was pretty, I, I, I imagine it would be pretty similar to any other interview. So how did you approach coming up with Lauren Caspian as a character and who he would be as a host? I think, well, physically, he's sort of a composite. He's sort of a Frankenstein monster of so many different, of the... Michael Barbaro and Ira Glass and Malcolm Gladwell and and Terry Gross. And we just sort of tried to find the unifying physical characteristics of all those people, exaggerate them (laughs) to perhaps unkind degrees, and then uh, uh, make a puppet that looks like them and, and who I feel like is basically a version of myself. And then in terms of his emotional or intellectual uh, quirks, I think there's a few things you wanted to to emphasize. One is that he's essentially a very lonely, insecure person who feels negligible about himself and kind of unlovable. And so armors himself in a collection of high-minded references and uh, kind of progressive medallions that require very little follow-through, but that sound impressive and... um, 
you know, that the idea that his intellectualism or his progressivism or things that could in another person be very beautiful and valuable in his case are just kind of a raincoat to try to keep him out of the torrential downpour of his own feelings of inadequacy. Mm. And just the fact that I said the description of the character in that way shows you how little distance there is between me and Lauren, (laughs) that I made a tortured, long-winded metaphor to explain a simple (laughs) phenomenon should should remove any doubt that I am solidly one of these people. Well, one of your favorite interviews from the show is with legendary fighter Mike Tyson. Did you ever think in the middle of a bout, I wish I could just look my opponent in the eye and say, I am enough? I do that when I smash his face. Interesting. <laughs> so when you're going into these interviews with, with these celebrities... How much preparation were you doing? Did you did you prepare for it as if it was an interview to just kind of go in and say, let's improv this out and see what happens? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, we would have, well, we had writers and they would submit questions, but we would research the guests a lot. And one of the gratifying moments is sometimes we would be like, oh, this is a better researched interview than I usually have. And that would make <laughs> us feel good because we really did try to take time. Part of why we wanted to do the show is, as I'm sure you've experienced, people who are in the public eye have such ready access to their talking points Mm -hmm. and a kind of glossy, well-practiced collection of responses. And we thought, if we can get people to talk for an hour to a fictional stop-motion NPR host, they will just by necessity have to let go of some of those talking points and go into weirder areas because it's already such an uncanny valley kind of experience to talk to this puppet for an hour. Um, And perhaps they'll sort of leave their comfort zone without being made to feel personally uncomfortable. That was sort of our our goal. Um, And I think that happened. So you would get different shades of people than, than you might be expecting. Roxanne Gay, who I really like reading her stuff, but it's not goofy. She was really like, she made a lot of dirty jokes and she was kind of silly and, or Mike Tyson was very poetic and kind of monkish in the way that he talked about things. So it was nice to discover a a different aspect of all of these people. While you were doing the interviews, it's something I really love. Um, When I'm, when I'm talking with someone and we, we sort of tumble down a road that, that I didn't expect. And my curiosity sort of gets the better of me and we end up in a completely different place than what I'd had planned for the conversation. Were you able to give yourself the space for that kind of organic discovery, even though you're playing the character of a public radio host? That's really interesting. Yeah, I think sometimes yes, sometimes no. There were times where at the end of the interview I would think, Ugh, like I should have just trusted that it would have been funny and followed that thing they said that was so interesting and made me so curious, like where I I sort of held too fast to my shtick. Mm -hmm. There were other times when I would feel so kind of swoony about a person or just perplexed that it almost wasn't a decision. You just end up in some strange conversational, um, you know, digression that was really interesting. With Mike Tyson, there's one moment where I really, because I've always been fascinated by Mike Tyson and I've read his book and I've seen his one man show. And and there was a moment where I just wanted to ask him, I just wanted to say like, 
you know, given all that you went through, did you ever feel or do you ever feel protective of the little kid that you used to be mm-hmm. who was going through such sort of unimaginable horrors? And he just went, no. He goes, he had to walk through the fire. He had to be burnt. And I was like, geez, Louise. He goes, I took the punches so my kids didn't have to. And it, and then he started talking about loss and and and. All that stuff was like, I was so glad I let myself ask the question about his childhood because even if the answer hadn't been so interesting, I don't know, there's, in the same way that for Lauren needing to be constantly erudite and uh, sort of mentally uh, acute can be exhausting, having to make jokes all the time can be equally kind of claustrophobic. Yeah, yeah. Coming up, we discuss why Zach chose animation specifically to poke fun at public media. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Maiden Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. Your co-creators are Mike Judge, who's behind the shows um, Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill, and Brandon Gartner, who's your longtime writing partner, and you met him doing improv with the Upright Citizens Brigade. How much of your improv experience did you tap into during the show? Uh, A fair amount. I think both Brandon and I approach writing from a pretty improvisational vantage point, and then Certainly the interviews, all of the interviews, except there's one interview with this cage fighter named Jorge Masvidal, who is a mixed martial artist. And there's a story in which Fabian, the the researcher and and show producer Fabian, who's this really hardcore left-wing kind of confrontational woman, is having this pre-interview with this right-wing cage fighter. And they have this very idiosyncratic moment of connection where they both sort of respect each other's pain and are receptive to each other's pain and vulnerability. And they have this brief moment of connection through this pre-interview. So that one was scripted, although uh, the cage fighter, Jorge, who was being interviewed, he did a lot of improv that was really funny. But but mostly the interviews were just completely improvised. So that that was fun. I haven't since the pandemic, I haven't improvised in on stage. So it was a nice it was nice to dust off. Now Mike Judge is a legend in the animation world, the right medium for this project. 
I think if you're going to make a show about people who are twee and delicate and kind of break easily and are precious and they're being controlled by forces that are beyond their own awareness, puppets are the right medium for that. Um, also, I think it gets you a slightly longer leash in terms of satire, things that could feel quite caustic coming out of the mouth of a live action performer when they're put in the mouths of a uh, silicon puppet feel less cruel and more, hopefully, more funny. <laughs> and something that we didn't know until we were doing the process is that I, I think a core belief of the show is that people are more than one thing and that our tendency to reduce ourselves and each other to sort of one identity or one ideology or one act, good or bad, is limiting. And one thing that was really incredible to learn about the stop motion process is that each character is animated by like 30 different people and they each bring their own histories and imaginations and vulnerabilities and quirks to the character. So each character contains 30 people um, just by virtue of the technical process. And so that was another reason we were happy in retrospect to have chosen stop motion. How involved were you in, in the making of the animation? I mean, short of actually being there playing with the puppets, we were pretty involved. Every morning we would talk through every shot and uh, talk to the animators about how the scene should feel. One thing that's really interesting to me is that I guess typically in stop-motion animation, people give very hyper-specific direction about, okay, I want his left hand to go here, and then I want him to sit at this moment. And we tried to just treat the animators more like actors, because that's what they are, and tell them what we thought the kind of emotional core of the scene was and then let them do their thing. And they were so incredibly talented. And one thing that was really exciting is that while the animators are introducing you to the characters in a way, the characters are also introducing you to the animators in the sense that like, you know, some animators are, are shy or maybe even socially awkward. But then when you see them when you see the work they've done, you can see pieces of them that they maybe wouldn't be willing to share conversationally coming through the through the characters. It's actually very moving, even though this is like a very goofy show with like jokes about foreskin transplants and things like that. So I don't want to sound too high-minded about it, but there <laughs> there were these moments where you'd just see like a little part of somebody's heart peeking through a silicon puppet. Well, this was your first time directing, right? Well, I've directed other stuff before. I directed a lot of commercials and I did, made some short films and things like that. But I'd never directed stop motion before. And so I, I'm trying to understand. You said there's 30 people behind each character. And so as a director, how do you approach this? You, you said you give them the emotional core of the scene. And then you do you just sort of step out of the process and then come back in when it's done and see what happens? Or, or is there a way for you to sort of guide it as it's being shaped? No, it's sort of the former. You basically talk in detail about how you would like the scene to feel and what you think is going on with each of the characters and any technical specifications that feel important. And then it's exactly what you said. You just, you know, walk away and come back and it's done. And because it's so expensive and time consuming, you kind of have what you have. You know, I'm used to shooting live action stuff. And when you're directing live action, you it's you can often shape a lot in the edit, but you're with with uh, stop motion, you you've done your edit before you start shooting in a way. Well, who was behind the animation? Was there a specific team? 
Yes, it's this uh, company called Shadow Machine. And they are the people, they just won an Oscar for uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. And they were willing to slum it with us, which was wonderful. I mean, they're truly the best stop motion animators in the world. And I'm always quite partial to people who, you know, I live in Los Angeles and God knows LA is a a city where fame and cachet and ambition are very well represented. Shadow Machine is in Portland, Oregon, um, sort of unsurprisingly. And, and it's all of these people, you know, no one's ever going to get super rich being a stop motion animator and no one's ever going to get famous. It's just these people who have cultivated this incredibly specific skill set and love it and love each other and, they have this weird little pirate ship up there where they make these beautiful, delicate things. It's so lovely. And also it's a kind of teaching hospital model where there's really experienced people working right next to people who have never done stop motion animation before. And so it's a real feeling of community in a way. Like if nothing else, if everyone on earth hated the show and and there was no further episodes made and whatever. Just the experience of meeting those people and spending time with them would be enough for me. Mm. Well, as you've alluded to, a lot of the show points fun at liberal virtue signaling. So let's take a listen to a clip from the first episode. I'm sorry. I'm really very empathetic to the man's situation. I volunteer at a homeless shelter. Uh, but- no, you volunteer at an unhoused shelter. A shelter for persons currently without housing. Well, it just feels very clunky. You said, Zach, that this is partially a project about <laughs> satirizing public radio, but it's also about you and and the people around you. I mean, what what were you poking fun at? What were you trying to really satirize about yourself? I think the distance between the version of me that I like to tell myself and the version of me that I actually am. I think there's often quite a wide chasm between our aspirational selves or even the selves that we describe ourselves as being and what we actually do day to day. And I think that's funny and tragic. <laughs> and, you know, for example, that that clip you just played, there's this whole fracas about what to call this guy who's in the who's in the studio bathroom who's homeless or unhoused or person currently without housing depending on how you choose to describe him uh, and i think the people who, who i made the show with and i agree language is really important um but when language becomes a filibuster or a way of punting the conversation out of meaning an arena of meaningful action into a arena of sanctimonious kind of preening, um, then it becomes really dangerous. And I've definitely done that before. I feel like I've had conversations about privilege uh, in five-star hotels, you know, without, with, with the faintest or none, no self-awareness about it. You know what I mean? You're, you're talking like Karl Marx and you're living like Marie Antoinette, you know? We're heading to a quick break, but we'll be back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. 
And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. Let's get back to the conversation with this clip of Zach's character, Lauren Caspian, interviewing Jonathan Van Ness, who's also been a guest on 1A. Jonathan, what I love about your show, Queer Eye, is that you're taking rightful revenge against heterosexual society by erasing straight identities. It's sort of a conversion camp in reverse. A physically imposing five-person platoon thunders into the hetero's home and tells them to change everything about themselves or they'll never be loved. And I think it's just wonderful. Yeah, we actually edit out the boxing matches. I'm curious how you pitched this to the folks you interview on In the Know. Like what what was <laughs> what did that pitch sound like when you said, "Hey, we're doing this new show and fill in the blank for me." We said you're going to get paid. You're going to get paid like you've never gotten paid in your whole life. <laughs> And then we were like, we don't have the money, but we'll figure it out. And then we didn't, we didn't figure it out. Um, we had a booker, uh, Hillary, who, who was a booker for The Daily Show. And I think she was generously willing to lend us her personal credibility so that we could get guests who are really otherwise unattainable. Because it's a kind of dodgy proposition to be like, hey, do you want to be on a f- NPR show that's not a real NPR show that you've never heard? And it'll be an hour and you have no control over how it's edited. But... I think because of her, she guests were willing to to participate. But yeah, we were presented as largely similar to a to an actual interview. Mm. It, it, watching the show took me back to watching Mr. Bill on SNL when when I was probably too young to watch it, and I was always fascinated by the amount of emotion um, that can be projected through this this kind it's the stop motion animation um what did you take away from this experience about your ability to direct act um or or just express your art through through a different type of medium when you didn't have any experience with i guess my this is okay this is going to be really insufferable. So if <laughs> anyone listening, if you just turn down your volume, if you found me irritating up to now, don't change, don't change the channel because that'll mess with their ratings, but don't punish them for my pretentiousness. But I'll, this is what I'll say. I love the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. And I don't know if you're familiar with that story, mm-hmm. but there's this moment where this toy rabbit asks this horse what real is. And the horse explains that real is what happens when a child loves you for a very long time, not just to play with, but really loves you. And they enter into this whole conversation about how you become real and and how much love and time it takes. I guess my personal philosophy of making things is basically this. If I can love a fictional character, even an irritating fictional character, if I can really love them enough that they become real to me, then hopefully they'll become real to my collaborators and then they will love those characters and they will become real to them. You know, so if the writer, if the writer loves the character, they're real to the writer. And then 
they become real to the director of photography and the actors and the animators. And then if everyone does their job right and everyone loves those characters, they become real to an audience at best. You know, it, I think that's the, the and also I think then the audience becomes realer to themselves and, and we all become realer to each other. So that might have just been kind of word salad. But basically, I think as long as you love the characters, um, even if it's a kind of harsh love, but then the medium is a little bit secondary. You can figure out the technical stuff as long as your your heart is fully in the game. Zach, you've done um, a couple of public radio interviews now, and you've also had the experience of playing a public radio host. Do you hear or listen to public radio any differently now that you've been on both sides of that experience? I will say that I feel that the public radio people we've spoken to have been the best sports about it. Like sometimes when I've talked to people, there's some people I've talked to in different aspects of media who sort of occupy the same cultural and ideological space I do, who I think feel a little defensive about some of the satirical stuff. But I haven't felt that from anyone at NPR and everyone seems like quite ready to laugh at themselves. And so that was nice. I was like, wow, it's a, it's a hearty bunch over there. <laughs> like, uh, I, I've been in, in public media for over 25 years now. And I will say that a lot of us, we, we have, we, we appreciate a good laugh, a good belly laugh, even if it's at our own expense. So we, I think you will run into more of that if you keep talking to us. While you were talking about satirizing yourself and your experience and and kind of your view of the world and and some of the conflict you feel. When you were creating these characters who are constantly playing this sort of moral one-upmanship, how often did you think about the ways that might be interpreted by people on the opposite end of the ideological perspective from you? Yeah, we thought about that a lot because what we didn't want to do is, right, just create kind of tired archetypes and trot them out for the 9,000th time. And I think one thing that we really tried to make a priority is root ourselves in their humanity and try to understand where their worst behavior was stemming from and and hold that in mind. So to try to be unsparing but also empathic mm. <laughs> in our treatment of the characters and and by proxy in a, the treatment of ourselves. Um and then the other thing that I uh, we thought a lot about is trying to make sure our point of view was clear to us. Um to not just default to kind of tropes um and and to be specific about what we were trying to ridicule i think there's an interesting it's it's a really interesting question i i think some people feel that like any acknowledgement of weakness from your own side is kind of a betrayal in a way that that in a world in which there's so much factionalism and there's so many threats and there's so much that can um, that hangs in the balance that you just have to circle the wagons and not admit any fault on your side. And that's that. My bias is that people who can make fun of themselves have more credibility. And 
it's easier to understand a situation if you're willing to also engage with your own ridiculousness. And for me, if somebody on the opposite end of the political spectrum were to be self-mocking, it wouldn't sway me to their side necessarily, but it would give me more respect for them and it would give them more credibility with me. I would be more apt to listen to them at least if I felt like they were they were at least somewhat aware of their own blind spots. And so that's what we were trying to do. And it's each individual viewer's uh, call whether or not we succeeded. That was such a long answer. I apologize. (laughs) I hope no one's driving. I hope no one careened into a guardrail because they were put into a narcoleptic state by that answer. Well, I don't know, Zach. That might have been somebody's driveway moment. You don't know. They could be sitting in their driveway right now. And during our next pledge drive, they will call in and say, I was listening to 1A. And I had a driveway moment listening to Zach Woods, the creator, executive producer, and actor in Peacock's new show, In the Know, which is out now. You never know. I mean, I feel like I know. No (laughs) one was waiting in their driveway for me to... (laughs) They were like... (laughs) That was something where someone rolled out of a moving car. It's the opposite of a driveway moment. They were like, I can't. I know I'm on the freeway, but I just can't. And they just opened the door and... Zach, I tried. I I really tried. (laughs) Well, it's been really a lot of fun to talk to you, and and I've been enjoying the series. And hopefully, we will get a season two. If you if you need some ideas, let me know. I've got I've got stories. I've got stories. Careful what you offer. You don't know what you just signed yourself up for. Um, Thank you for having me. I had a great time. That was Zach Woods. Again, he's the creator, executive producer, and star of Peacock's new show, In the Know, and it's out now. And just a reminder, we just launched 1A+. When you join 1A+, you get to listen to our show sponsor-free, and you're supporting our work. Go to plus.npr.org slash V1A to find out more. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. When you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Homes.com has got you covered with a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from Wired on Wired Politics Lab you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts.